Hello, John here with another thrilling Romans podcast, part 13. This is going on forever, isn't it? We're not even halfway through yet. Uh, And we're looking today at the rest of chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. Last week, we talked about the illustration of marriage and said that um, once your husband or wife dies you're no longer bound to them you're free to remarry to have kids if you want to and if you're able to and this week I want to talk about marriage again but in a very different way this week is actually about two things more about law and more about sin so it's obviously going to be a very cheery episode And let's begin with the word law. And we need to understand in this somewhat complex passage that the word law is used in three different ways. And it's important that we distinguish between those. Now, most of the references to the word law are about the Jewish law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments and the associated 600 odd rules and regulations Uh, and that's the way that the word is used at the start of this passage and through most of it uh, that's easy to get hold of but we're going to see that it also means in verse 21 a general principle which holds true Uh, I find it a law that if the weather forecast says it's going to be sunny, it'll actually rain. Uh, That's that kind of law, obviously very different from the uh, Jewish Torah. But then there's a third use of it, and that comes in verse 23. And it's used to mean kind of controlling powers which clamour for our attention and our obedience and particularly um, Paul uses the phrase the law of sin that within me which wants to sin which uh, rather enjoys it actually what in the old unholy trinity of the world the flesh and the devil uh, we would call the flesh the the sinful bit of me and the power the law of sin is the power that that still uh, wields over me so when we understand those three different uses of the word law same greek word throughout uh, that's going to make paul's argument a whole lot easier to understand so we'll uh, come back to that in a moment So let's begin with the Jewish law, the Torah. What's that all about? Paul has already said it's not necessary. We can be justified before God. We can be accepted as righteous before God without it. And he's already explained that that's the way that Abraham found his favour with God in chapter 4. So if we don't need it, why not just get rid of it? Well, he says in, uh, or he said in 520, um, it does have value, and he uses that phrase which I promised that we would come back to the law is there so that trespass might increase. Now, what's he mean 
by that. I think we can understand this if we think that the Jewish law, as with any rules or regulations, the statute, the law of the land and so on, have two purposes. They show me how bad I am and they stop me from being worse. What laws can't do, though, is stop me being bad. And I think that's the, the crucial thing to get hold of in this chapter. I think I've used before the illustration of speed limits. According to the book, my car can do, I think it's 157 miles an hour top speed. But I live in a land which has laws which impose speed limits. So when I do accidentally, of course, um, find that I'm doing 80, I know I'm doing wrong. So the law shows me that I have broken it, but also probably in my driving, I'm not going to do much more than 80 because the law shows me I've broken it, but stops me from breaking it a whole lot more than I otherwise might. So when I'm on a German autobahn, for example, um, it's a very different thing. And I did, not in this car, in someone else's actually, I did get up to 120, I think 125. And that was okay because there was no law. It might have been really stupid, but it wasn't breaking the law. But in England, the fact that the limit is 70 means that I'm probably going to do 90 tops. And of course... Uh, as I said before, since I had my very heart changed by my advanced motoring qualification, of course, I don't do any more than 70. So the law, the Torah, and in fact any um, government laws, are not necessarily bad things. They do have a good purpose. What they can't do is to help me to be good. They can just help me to be slightly better than I otherwise might. So Paul uses the example of coveting. Before he knew the law, he was gloriously free from covetousness. As a child, he probably didn't even understand what the word meant. But as soon as he learnt, he realised that in fact he was covetous. And that's the whole thing about the law. It makes us feel bad about the things that we do wrong as soon as we know that we are doing them wrong. Now let me um, give an illustration of this. Imagine a man who falls in love and marries a, a wonderful woman. Uh, by the way, let me say again, as I said last week, this argument could work the other way round, but let me stick with convention. This man, happily married for a short while, but then discovers that actually it's not as wonderful as he thought it was going to be. And in fact, he discovers that his wife is a right nag. And she finds fault with everything that he does and every way 
that he does it. She nags him about stuff he doesn't do but should. But when he does the stuff, he doesn't do it in the right way. You get the picture. I, I know this is uh, based on a fantasy, anything than real life. But let's stick with the caricature. So the wife finds fault with absolutely everything he does. But she never lifts a finger to help. She never says, um, you clearly can't do that. Let me do it for you. Anything like that. All she does is sits there and criticise him. Now, that, I think all of us would say, is a fairly toxic marriage. But that is just what the law is like, the Torah. It's great at telling you you've done it wrong, but it can never do anything to help you get it right. Why? Because it doesn't get to the root cause and here is the other law, the law of sin, that within me, which can't help but sin, and even makes me want to sin. It's no good just telling me that I'm no good. I'm an addict. I'm addicted to sin. There's this powerful law which is making me want to do it. I need more help than, than simply being told what I'm doing is wrong. And this leads us on to the second half of the passage, very well-known bit, Paul's struggle with sin. And it's a deeply personal passage in which he admits the degree to which he finds it a struggle. Now the Torah lets him know that he's doing it wrong. But the law of sin makes him keep doing it. And, and so you get this heart-wrenching passage from 15 to 25, ending in the, the creed occur, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will set me free from this body which is bound for death because it just can't stop sinning? merely telling me I'm sinning is absolutely no help at all. It just makes me feel worse. The gist is easy to get, although Paul takes a long time explaining it. And any of us who have ever tried to go on a diet, for example, will understand this perfectly well. I know what I should eat, but I just can't. The good stuff I know I ought to eat, like lettuce, when faced with a lovely bacon sandwich or something like that, I, I just can't resist it. I know I shouldn't do bacon sandwiches, especially not with chips for breakfast, but that's what I find myself doing. I want to do the good stuff, but I just keep doing the bad stuff and I pay the price for that in my body. That's uh, a fairly universal experience, I think. I think we uh, we get what Paul's saying there, even if we're slightly surprised to hear such a superhero saying it. Now, I think we need to go a little bit deeper into um, these few verses because there are two important questions over which different uh, readers of the passage have disagreed. 
and we do need to take a look at those and the two questions are these is Paul describing here his pre-Christian existence as uh, an orthodox Jew trying to keep the law or is he describing his life, his, his ongoing life, even though he's now a Christian leader? And the second question tied in with that, is this a temporary state for the immature or is it a permanent thing that we're going to have to live with? And both those uh, points of view have been... Um, agreed with by scholars and commentators on this passage uh, some people read this as Paul's struggle to keep the Jewish law until he met Jesus others recognize it as a struggle even once he had become a Christian some read it as the temporary state of an immature Christian who has not yet conquered sin some read it as a continuing fight against sin, which is only going to end when we die or Jesus returns. So which is it? How do we actually understand this passage? And I think it is really important we understand this correctly because there are some big pastoral implications to this. Well, as you know, I'm a good Anglican, so my answer to both questions is both. It does describe Paul's experience, pre-Christian, but it also describes his ongoing struggle now. It is something that uh, is particularly poignant for new Christians, but I'm going to say in a minute it only gets worse as we become mature Christians, uh, not better. So, I believe that this kind of struggle that Paul's describing here is something that every Christian is going to face for all of their lives. If we only think, you see, that this is the pre-Jesus Paul and we meet someone who uh, admits to us that they're struggling over a particular temptation, a particular issue then we have to say to them, well, that must be because you're not a real Christian. And if you come to Jesus, then that struggle will be over. Or we have to say to them, well, it's, it's only because you're an immature Christian and as you go on, sin will no longer be a problem for you. Uh, and both of those, I think we'd all agree, lack some pastoral sensitivity and we also run the danger of making people false promises, which are not true in our own lives and almost certainly not true of any Christian. Um, in fact, I, I think in my experience, the longer you've been a Christian, the more intense uh, and nuanced that struggle becomes. You know, when you when people first come to Christ, they're they're really pleased with themselves because they've. Um, stop swearing and haven't got drunk for a month now and uh, and that kind of stuff and they're the sort of external sins and they're the easy ones to conquer but 30 years down the road you then become aware of much deeper sins your jealousy your critical <clears throat> attitudes towards 
towards others, your lack of love, those kind of things. Um, and, And so we need to be careful, I believe, in interpreting the passage to mean that perfection, the end of the struggle, is possible in this life, either when we come to Jesus or when we've grown in Jesus enough. And I think that's a triumph of bad theology over experience. Certainly my experience says no way. So what Paul is sharing here so personally, I would argue, is the struggle of every Christian wanting really to live Jesus' way. And so that cry at the end, who will set me free from this struggle? is answered dramatically, thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ. And that, I think, then gives the context for an earlier bit. I did say right at the start, if I'd been writing Paul's letter to the Romans, there are bits I'd have done in a different order to make the logic easier. So in 6.11, Paul said, count yourselves as dead to sin. You're not going to be before you get to heaven, he now admits, but you can live as though you were. You don't have to do it. There is no inevitability. The law of sin actually doesn't have any power over you. It's just that you want to. Uh, do what it says and so that struggle against sin is the absolute hallmark of the Christian life and the letter to the Hebrews um, has got something to say about Christians who have kind of given up in that struggle. The way that we win skirmishes within that war is what we offer our bodies and minds to. And he's talked about that in chapter 6. When we offer our bodies and our minds to Christ, we're less likely to get trapped in sin than when we offer them to what temptation is telling us to offer them to. So what we've got here again is that tension between the real and the true. It is true that we are dead to sin in Christ. We don't have to do what it says. But what's real is that we still want to and we still do. And so our life becomes this perpetual struggle against sin, uh, which we mustn't give in to at any cost. We, We mustn't just stop fighting, as it were. Now that makes the Christian life sounds sound like a bit of a miserable existence. In the next chapter, Romans 8, which many say is the climax to the whole letter, uh, Paul is going to be very much more positive about the benefits of being in Christ. So we're going to explore that next time. In the meantime, don't give up the fight. See you soon.